0: What i will say is that i dealt with a lot of special situations which were sometimes they were like maybe media pr issues sometimes it was like uh, personal safety or you know threats and so like there's a like a wide spectrum of all sorts of issues that you face within a, a large corporate as large as Tesla. and so when i joined 500 and we went through this process it's actually very interesting for me because until this point I always used to feel like I was um, not very experienced and I didn't really know anything. And then I found myself in my element. And I I don't want to sound like horrible here, but I'm just saying like it was a really messed up situation and I was feeling excited and energized and I could see through the chaos and that was my element. I was in my element.
1: That was the voice of Ashur Siddiqui, General Partner at Sokna Ventures. This episode has been divided into two parts, and this is the beginning of part two. If you haven't listened to part one yet, I recommend you listen to it before you listen to this episode. Enjoy. I am your host, Ali Zweil and this is the Startups Arabia podcast, where you learn about the Arab startups' ecosystem from the best founders, investors, and operators in the region. My guest today is Ashur Siddiqui, General Partner at Sokna Ventures, a MENA region-focused early-stage VC fund that backs exceptional teams building software and data infrastructure layer, enabling the digital transformation of industries. Ashur is a tech investor with a global career spanning 25 plus years, having made over 100 investments valued at over $15 billion over the years. He started his career in the late 90s as an entrepreneur, software engineer, followed by 10 years in corporate M&A at the Salat, the regional behemoth, where he ended his career as head of M&A and corporate VC, where he led over $15 billion of mergers and acquisitions and investments into corporate venture capital. After that, he switched full-time to venture capital where he joined the global leadership team at 500 startups now 500 global in san francisco for four years asher was involved in the development of several vc firms including sokna ventures one of the MENA region lumikai fund in india zain capital in pakistan race capital in silicon valley he's also a gp coach and advisor to several vc fund managers and sits on the advisory board of several vc firms including Footprint Coalition Ventures, which has been co-founded by Robert Downey Jr., no less. Mirror's Capital, led by the former head of corporate development, at Google. And the Treasury, led by the co-founders of Betterment and Acorns, two fintech unicorns, among others. Enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with interesting, very deep, very wise nuggets with Asher Sadiqi so so i'm kind of I'm, I'm i'm keen to dive into your time at 500 as well but before i do that there's yeah. something i just have to ask you which is i mean you're advising uh, a fund that was co-founded by robert downey jr so i mean what is that like what's he like and how did that come about
0: yeah, that that's uh, that's a pretty cool story. So, um, so uh, I, I have a, a friend uh, that um, is. Uh, so I'll tell you first, like how it came about, and then I'll I'll tell you a little bit about the, the about the fund. So, um, how it started was uh, I um I, I have a friend that I, that I've known for for many years. Um, who uh, you know, like knows the Porsche Piech uh, family uh, for, for, for a long time. And uh, he, was, um, he recently uh, sort of joined the uh, uh, Tony Piech's uh, family office to run the family office. And so uh, Chris, my friend, then introduced me to Tony Piech. And so Tony Piech is also like a fascinating uh, entrepreneur uh, and hustler. Uh, so Tony is the son of uh, Ferdinand Piech, who was the chairman and uh, CEO and chairman uh, later of, of VW. And um, and he's actually, his father was the person that resurrected, you know, Lamborghini and uh, Bugatti and, and, and a lot of other uh, brands. He actually he started out at Audi. So he actually was the engineer at Audi and then transformed Audi into this, you know, sort of. This brand, and he was the CEO of Audi actually before he became uh, CEO. So, and so Tony, uh, Tony is now uh, the entrepreneur himself. So he's part of the, fa- the Porsche Pf family. They that that family actually controls uh, VW and and Porsche. And and by the way, this is a fascinating, fascinating story. I encourage you to to uh, dig up that whole Porsche pierre family and how um, uh, they came about. It's it's uh, it, it's it's fascinating uh, story. Anyway, so. So long story short, so Tony Piech is um, you know he comes from this very prominent family, and uh, but he left the family and he became an entrepreneur and he actually became a journalist and he was uh, in China and um, and he, he you know and Chris and he were kind of like working together and, and helping each other out and Tony then decided well you know there's. The Porsche-Pierre family is 50-50, Piech and Porsche, right? Because uh, Ferdinand Porsche had two children, you know, one married um, Anton Piech and the other one is, you know, like a Porsche surname. but they're, they own 50-50. But Tony's uh, perspective was, and I'm talking about someone else now, I shouldn't really be doing this, but like, uh, you know, like I hope you won't mind. He's a, he's a friend now. So I said, Tony had this view that, you know, what about the Piech-Pierre side of the family, we don't have a brand. And so Tony then built Piech Automotive and it's this beautiful, gorgeous car. And um, I like stories and I'm I'm not a car person, by the way, or a watch person, or any of these things, but I love a good story. And I love this story of and the way that Tony's building Piech Automotive is actually very interesting. It's very similar to how Porsche was built. So Porsche was built, but Porsche didn't actually build. They were a design company that worked with W to build and produce their cars, and and he's doing something similar in the. Um, uh, but he also saw that electric electrification and the energy. We were in the midst of an ener- energy transition, so he wanted to build Kia Automotive, but he also. Realized that maybe the technology needed to be different, and so he got involved in sort of the energy transition space and and so like the PIEC uh, cars are you know like um electrified cars, but like they're they're a driver's car uh, uh, but they're also like you know um sort of part of that whole energy transition yeah and so they are uh limited partners lps in um in Footprint Coalition, which is Robert Downey Jr.'s fund. And um, and and I, on the side, as I, I think I mentioned to you that when I left 500, I was doing a lot of uh, coaching uh, with EPs, yep. uh, general partners of, of many different funds. And mm-hmm. so I was doing this, and um, one of the problems, I guess, with me is that I tell people what I think, and I, I do all of this pro bono, but, and the reason why I do this pro bono is, is because I want to be have I want to have the freedom to be able to tell people what I think. And I spent l- a lot of years learning how to assess venture funds from an LP perspective. I learned, you know, that. And um and, and sometimes when you will meet GPs that are coming from very prominent backgrounds, they won't listen to you. And and if they pay you, they won't listen to you. So I would be like, I will do this pro bono because I want you to. Hear me in terms of, and it's okay. You can disagree with me, but you need to listen to me and reflect on what I'm saying, and then maybe figure out what the right answer is. But I want to be heard, um, but I, because I really enjoy doing it, because I learn and develop myself. So I, I, I do this GP coaching, and I'm, you know, I've been actually you know i don't usually plug myself but i've actually been fairly successful so in in helping you know a couple of funds uh, get off the ground and and uh, helped other funds get to the next level and um so and, and my friends tony and, and chris know this and so they introduced me to um uh, to the robert downey jr's uh, partners and um so they've offered many times and they've i've been invited to meet robert downey jr at his ranch or he was filming uh for this he, he's uh he's doing um uh this uh, a series that he sold to discovery channel and so he was filming and i've been invited but i have not actually met robert downey jr because i i'm not interested in fame or you know i'm, I'm like i i will meet him when i'm uh like when the, when the timing when is it right. happens yeah when it happens, when there's a logical uh, thing. But his partners are people that I like to work with. And um, because I, I, I love what Footprint are doing. So, in, what, what are Footprint doing? So, Robert Downey, uh, you know, Jr., has had this perspective that, you know, just like I did about, and just like so many of us did, that, you know, what are we going to do? And, and he is pretty inspiring because, you know, I mean, he's a Hollywood actor, right? I mean, he could have just stayed in that space. And so he's using his platform. And so what they actually have an amazing sort of flywheel. So what what they have is that they've got a dozen people. They've got four or five people that are investors. These people are investors who have been entrepreneurs who have built companies and exited companies, and they know that journey. And they are also have a very good track record of investing in startups and they're passionate about climate. And so those are that team. And then Robert Downey Jr. has, like, and then they have a bunch of other people, and these people are media production uh, people. And so what they do is they invest in uh, companies that are solving problems that are going to help us manage or transition through this climate uh, transition that we're going through. Um, So the investors think this is a good decision, good investment opportunity that's going to make us a lot of money. And then... Um, the, the way that they're attracted is um, what they will do is they will pick certain companies and then they will showcase them. So they have a production studio where they will produce content and around, and weave, it, weave uh, you know, that solution around that content because you need content, you need ideas to tell stories. And so what Robert Downey Jr. has done is he's created this fly, flywheel where they've actually sold a show to Discovery Channel. Uh, where he's talking about companies and some of the companies that he's talking about that are changing the world are companies that are invested in and the in- companies that have allowed Footprint to invest in them. So um, I love that model. And and um, so the, the reason why I work with people like Footprint is because sometimes you're doing an amazing job yourself, but sometimes you don't know how good of a job you're doing. And sometimes it takes some dummy like Asher to show up and tell you how to, Articulate your story. Not to say that they they don't know how to tell their story. I'm just saying that sometimes it takes a ten year old child to come in and tell you what you're really doing. And you know, I'm the te- that ten year old, and I love it.
1: Well, um, and I well, love more the like LP. the decades experience and and having an LP, uh, you know, perspective to add. So yeah, uh, cool. Um, okay, moving like to five hundred, and you were kind of part of the management team. During that tough period of transition when Dave left and uh, and all that happened, so were were there any existential moments for five hundred at the time, or was it more about just managing the 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 new the new phase and and structuring it?
0: So I mean, you know, look. Um... Uh, So this is where my my British uh, uh, skills, uh, (laughs) diplomatic skills will come into play. So, um, um, you know, like I think every organization uh, goes through sort of like challenging times. And if you make the right, if you don't make the right decisions or you don't react the right way, then those can quickly become existential. So I think, it was a pretty tough time uh, for for us when we went through that process. Um, you know, like it was a very interesting time for me, and I actually enjoyed my time uh, then because it was a very painful period, and it was a very tough period. And yes, potentially, all sorts of existential threats could have uh, come about. Um, but you know, like I uh, think one of the things that I didn't mention when I was when I was in Etisalat. One of the reasons why I was successful in becoming co-head and head of M&A was because I am I was a new kid on the block that didn't know anything about M&A or corporate finance. So what that meant was that naturally you're not going to give me the most important deals because I don't know what I'm doing. Right. And so I would get the deals that nobody else wanted to work on. And let's just call them the crappy deals. Um, and so I would call them special situations. And what I found is that when you look at special situations, um, uh, you know, like special situations make you think through a lot of different situations and, and issues. And then once you went you made that investment, you have all sorts of other problems that, that you face and you have to be thinking about Risk management—you have to be thinking about all sorts of issues—and and and we we operated in many complicated environments. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that ten years of doing a lot of special situations, and you know I'm I'm not going to talk about any of those specific special situations, but what I will say is that I dealt with a lot of special situations, which were sometimes they were like maybe media PR issues, sometimes it was like uh, personal safety or you know threats, and so like there's. Uh, like a wide spectrum of all sorts of issues that you face within a, a large corporate, as large as, 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 a, as a lot. And so when I joined 500 and we went through this process, it was actually very interesting for me because until this point, I always used to feel like I was um, not very experienced and I didn't really know anything. And then I found myself in my element. And I, I I don't want to sound like horrible here, but I'm just saying like it was a really messed up situation and i was feeling excited and energized and i could see through the chaos and that was my element i was in my element and i guess so i i, I guess what i'm saying is i, I enjoyed that and um uh, you know so we, we we went through the process and uh, and i was hope i was grateful to be there to be able to find a solution um uh, you know to be instrumental in finding that solution so uh, I don't know. I, I didn't really say much. That was a very English uh, <laughs> uh, response. <probably. laughs>
1: uh, all right. So okay. I mean, um, now, while you were at five hundred, you you raised yeah. like, uh, or you were part of raising about a hundred million dollars for the opportunity fund. And you know, can you tell us more about that process? How how you know uh, you you went through it and how it was actually achieved eventually?
0: Yeah. So, um, okay. So, it's, you know, we we were coming out of this sort of challenging transitional time, right? Um, and um, so, th- so the Opportunity Fund was. Maybe I'll explain to you the thesis of the Opportunity Fund, and then and then I'll talk to you about like maybe I think that'll help me sort of take you through, you know, my last year uh, to to exit. Um, so, when I was at five hundred, I uh, you know. Uh, I had this sort of vision for where 500 would go. And that was actually fairly in line with, I think what, uh, Dave McClure, the founder of 500 had envisaged. And and so I think we saw eye to eye and not just me, but also some other members of the management team, uh, you know, that, that saw the same vision. And so we wanted to execute on that vision. And part of that vision was, you know, we've got, we're laying so many early bets small early bets in founders all over the world and we are learning so much about these new markets these environments and their journey and we have so much data on them and we have so much time and so one of the challenges that you face with with venture is that you have to make decisions very very quickly because you are reacting to what is presented to you so deal flow comes to you and you have to react to it and you have time pressure and and of course V- VCs are masters of figuring out how to slow the process down so that they can find time to reflect and, and digest uh, this. But, you know, in a boom market, you just have to react and think on your feet. And, you know, um, so but, you know, we're, we're basically price takers. Right. So we're, that's that's the reactive nature of, of venture in in one aspect. But the the interesting thing for me was the Opportunity Fund, uh, which was we could spend two to three to five to six years, sometimes observing companies, observing founders, observing their, um, uh, you know, th- their, their trajectory and their development. And we were able to engage with the founders that we saw were doing something interesting and see how we could be helpful. And, uh, and that was, that was, that was cool. So it was like learning data and then, you know, find out, and obviously chemistry is important. So like, you know, is there chemistry here or not? And are we, can we be helpful or not? And, and, and what we found was that we were able to access companies that were, you know, like getting there and they were like doing very, very well. And we didn't have, we had the luxury to build relationships with them or rebuild relationships. Cause you know, the people that invested maybe, uh, very very early on and now they have the new set of investors and, and and others and we're we're still there but we're on the cap table and you know we're small we're super early right typically the first institutional check in 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 the in the uh, business so what i liked about the thesis of the opportunity fund was that we were able to take our time build relationships and then uh go and offer early uh like okay i'm just going to make this up as an example you're thinking of raising a series round i will early on i'll just say here you go here is a check for your series b because i have conviction around you and that's just going to help you get more momentum because you know it's like anchors are important and so if you can get the right signaling it just creates that momentum and then that momentum just just so we were basically going out there saying and you know if you have spent the time in building relationship with the founder again then they're more likely to consider you. And then if you're willing to flex your network and help to sort of optimize that process, then then obviously that's also super helpful. And then you know don't forget, like part of the sale process is, you know, getting independent perspectives. And so like me putting money into a company is independent now because I have spent a couple of years looking at this company and now I'm I'm investing in this company. I have an independent perspective and maybe I can share that. And maybe my insights are deeper uh, than, than the new investors uh, that are there because I've You've had time. To, yeah, yeah, and, and we did a bunch of things, uh, some cool things like we 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 uh, with with the um, with the uh, actually the, the founder uh, of um uh tribal credit um uh, we uh, we built an al- uh, he built an algorithm for us that was able to do sentiment analysis on founders and uh, founders' ability to raise the next round, which was a very interesting. Uh, um, uh, you know, and, and so there was a founder score that we had. And so we found well, that these that was founders, Angel, right? Yeah. Angel, exactly. Angel. Yeah. I, I, so, I'm um,
1: interviewing uh, the founder of tribal next week, by the way.
0: Oh, fantastic. You know what? So I, I would recommend what? that you ask him about that journey, uh, about right. uh, that project with Aman and myself. Um, that, that was a lot of fun. Um, so anyway, so like, so that was the thesis, I guess. So, um, fundraising was great. Like we, um, uh, you know, we had an anchor investor. I think that was important. And then along the anchor investor, we were able to get a bunch of other sort of co-anchors. And we got to like 45% uh, percent of uh, the $100 million target. And we were going to do a first clause. And uh, but, you know, uh, there was something that was going on in the background, which was that, you know, like, venture funds are partnerships. And so one of the challenges of partnerships is that you know you need to sort of form some sort of consensus around uh, organ- uh, this organization. And when you have a vision and a view of where you want to go, and maybe there's several other people within the firm that have this particular view, this this is the direction that they want to go. And then there's this other set of people who have a different view. And I'm not saying they are wrong or right. It's just that I have my aspirations of what I want to do, and they have their aspirations of what they want to do. And then what we found is that we were at this sort of fork where I think the divergence was was getting sort of wider. And so around that time is when a lot of the people that wanted to sort of go into like double down into the venture fund aspect, this the VC fund, and, and actually just be hardcore investors and invest, you know, they started to leave. And, and so when we left, uh, that's when, so that, that's actually the reason why sort of I left and, and so many other uh, sort of investors left. And, and, and it's been fascinating for me because the 500 alumni, or I would say, you know, almost, you know, potentially 500 mafia um, is, is like a fantastic, high quality uh, group of people because all of us are doing different things in different environments. Everyone is doing well in whatever they're doing. Some are founders, some are VC funds, some are uh, doing other things. Um, but what is cool is that we're helping each other, we're working with each other. So I'm actually involved in half a dozen projects that uh, half a dozen people, uh, w- funds uh, in, within the uh, alumni ecosystem. And we have a WhatsApp channel, we, you know, we're, we're, we're like actively engaged doing helping each other out. And, um, and then there's like a bunch of uh, founders that have come out of there uh, that are building and we're helping each other out. So I think um, that is one of the coolest things about being part of the 500 uh, sort of alumni is the alumni is very, very quality.
1: Yeah, they are. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, you know, I just want to uh, double click on, on one, one part which is the LP engagement process. Uh, yeah how did you create that pipeline? How, how do you, do you get the meetings? How do you decide which LPs are appropriate for you? What do LPs want to listen to? You know, what do they want to hear? Or is it different, Uh, can, can you tell us more about that?
0: Sure, Um, so it's, um, uh, so, you know, like the uh, fundraising is hard. Uh, Fundraising, if you think fundraising is hard for founders, wait until you're a VC. Because uh, you know, so when you're a founder, when you're fundraising, it's hard because you have to articulate a story of the future, a vision of the future, and you have to convince investors to to uh, believe in your vision of the future. But your vision of the future is finite in the sense that it is a specific opportunity and it's a specific window into the future. The problem with venture funds is that you're basically pitching to LPs, limited partners, who are investors in a fund with a collection of general partners who have a collective shared vision of multiple futures that they will invest in, trust me. (laughs) I mean, that is- Trust me, I'm gonna be good at
1: this.
0: (laughs) Yes, trust me, I'm gonna be good at this. And I want your money for 10 years, because within a 10-year window, I will start to provide you with your, I mean, okay, so within five years, you'll start to some of your uh, capital back, but you need to give me this money for 10 years, and it's not a liquid sort of asset. Um, but, you know, so like it's, it's, it's a very tough thing, right, to, to invest. But, but LPs do it because VCs, or general partners, have insight a unique insight into a particular market opportunity. Um, they have a particular lens and and the LP is really giving a GP the money to invest in something that the LP cannot do themselves. So you, when you give money to a money manager, you give it to a money manager because you can't do it yourself. Now, the challenge comes when the LP thinks they can do it the LP thinks that they can invest directly in, in the next Facebook or the next Uber. Um, and that the challenge becomes, comes there because, you know, and I'm not saying they can't, I'm saying that, um, you know, non-professional investors, investors that have capital, but aren't professional investors for a living, um, the probability of them hitting facebook or uber at early stage where then it made sense um uh, you know is like going in to a you know vegas style casino or buying a lottery ticket like the probability is very low and if it happens fantastic but it's very improbable now and, and that is one of the challenges. So I'm, g- I'm going to ask you a question, but I wanted to set the g- ground uh, or context around, yeah. you know, what the is that relation? Yeah. Yeah. So how did I, so like, that's that's the background, the context. And so like, um, now there are some investors that will are actively looking for LP opportunities and to invest in funds because they recognize that. And I myself, by the way, do that. So I invest directly in the MENA region because this is a region that I know and i invest in a specific asset class that i understand b2b SaaS and, and, and enterprise software uh infrastructure software infrastructure i understand this but if there's a consumer fund or a gaming fund well gaming now i know more about it so maybe not true but there was a time so i became an lp in a gaming fund um and i learned uh gaming that way i um i i became uh, an LP um, in a fund, uh, a fintech fund, because then I could learn actually in several fintech funds so that I could learn about fintech and that kind of informs me. So the point is I will invest in other markets as an LP because I cannot execute that. I don't have the best networks in Europe or U S or India. Yeah. And then, you know, the thing is, there's a great learning opportunity. And then that feed that learning opportunity of all this data that you're getting that data, if you crunch that data and reflect on that data, that will inform you, as unlikely that it may sound, as unrelated as what you are doing as a day job in the MENA market. Um, you know the perspectives that you get will actually inform you, even if you're doing something. You know, like you have a logistics company in Dubai. It's interesting what you can learn from uh, from from uh, from that. So, but you know, the thing is, you have to be active and you have to be involved in in learning. So that's kind of like. Um, you know, sort of what I do as, a, as an LP. Um, now how I started fundraising, um, you know, whether it was at 500, uh, or, or after I started to meet with people in my network. Um, I started to meet with people that were already LPs in 500 funds. Um, and what I did was I basically flew around the world and I would, you know, try to schedule meetings if they would meet me. Um, and, and a lot of them were referred to me. So they were intros that were made. So I was interested in meeting somebody and I would check with my network to see who do I know that can get me uh, a meeting with that person. So majority of my meetings that um, I had with prospective LPs were either, again, I said like uh, people who are already LPs in previous funds and, or people through my network, which by the way, is, is the same thing that I tell founders, right? Like don't go cold calling people. Uh, um, and then what I would do is I would actually, um, I would stalk. I mean, this is going to sound super creepy and, and it's going to make me look creepy as well, but like, um, I would stalk them online. I would figure out like, you know, what do they talk about? What do they, what do they listen to or who do they follow? Um, you know, like just trying to get some context around them. A little bit like what you did, I guess, uh, which I'm now realizing uh, before we did this. It's like, you know, you did this creepy stalking of me uh, online. And, you know, um, that's what I guess, what, what yeah. But, you know, it's cool <laughs> because that's, you're basically taking an interest and and so it's interesting like i i did not think it was creepy i th- i was actually pleasantly surprised and pleased that you took the time to do that and i respect you for that and i guess now i'm thinking that yeah i don't sound i don't feel so creepy anymore because i'm hoping that the lps also uh thought the same uh-huh. thing i
1: expect they have
0: <laughs> yeah well i <laughs> hope so so um so anyway so like the the point is like you 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 uh you you the hardest thing is to get a meeting and then when you get the meeting the second hardest thing to do is to talk less and listen more and this is something that i struggle with by the way but um listen because the first thing is a discovery meeting it's a discovery meeting not a transactional discovery meeting more like a discovery meeting in terms of getting to know you and and you getting to know me so this is like all about do we like each other? Do we have common interests? And and that's why it's helpful to do some research so that you know uh, you you can see whether you know it's almost like dating in a way, like you know like a first date where you're meeting them and you're talking to them and you're mostly listening because you're what you're trying to do is at least this is what I try to do is understand what matters to them, what are they looking for, and and sometimes I would walk out of the meeting not having pitched my fund because I listen to them and I realize that my fund is not what they're looking for. And therefore, it doesn't make any sense to pitch it to them. But now I have a valuable uh, insight into what they do like and what they're interested in. So what I would do then is I would, instead of pitching my fund, I would then introduce them or offer to introduce them to other funds that might be more of a fit for them. And, and that's what I would do. Um, and so, but, you know, obviously, if there was an interest, then uh, now that's like the like first level. Now, there's other meetings that I would call qualified meetings. Qualified meetings are meetings that are set up for the specific purpose of assessing us as an LP opportunity. Now, those are managed differently. Those are similar to the way that um, startups pitch to founders where, I mean, you do the same thing, but it's like, uh, uh, like the more uh, condensed where the first five minutes you will... Uh, meet them, and you will ask them for their strategy, their thesis, what are they looking for, etc., etc. And And that be helpful, because then what you will do is you will then pitch. Now, we have 10, say, product features on our fund. We know. Now, we can tell them all 10, but that's pretty stupid. The reason why it's pretty stupid is because you're bombarding them with so much information. But if you spend the time in listening uh, to them and figuring out what are the features they like. Then you tell them, well, by the way, this is the core. Fe-. Now, you have to tell them the core feature. The core feature is super important. It may or may not be one of the ones. But that is kind of what you are most passionate, passionate about. You tell them the core feature. And then you will only mention the one or two or three things that matter to them. And that's it. And then you pitch. And then it's up to them to you know express interest or not. And, you know, and then you do the follow-up. So I don't know if I helped you sort of uh, or if I... Your question there but like that that's that's kind of like the process where you have to meet people and you have to meet people it's it's really challenging because it's the most complicated sales process shall we say because it's a sales process where your best chances of success are by not selling by just being like always like uh, be like water like flow like water where you are open to the possibilities of meeting people building relationships with people and being as helpful as you possibly can. And, and you know, by the way, it works sometimes. So there was an LP that um, where my fund was not a fit and then they uh, and and that was fine. And, and you know, sort of uh, I introduced them to other funds. What was interesting was that I introduced them to a couple of other funds and then they came back and then they expressed interest in conducting due diligence in our fund because, their experience of investing i mean not investing looking at those other funds gave them some other random perspective and maybe it wasn't just the three that i made the intros to but also other funds that they were looking at where they were they had this somehow that this aha moment where they were like oh um asher's fund thesis kind of makes sense to me now it's interesting let's have a look so my point is you know what i mean sometimes you just like never Um,
1: you give, so, and then you never know how, how you know, how things come back yeah, to you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And,
0: you know, it's uh, so about, about karma, right? So um, when you yeah. introduce LPs to GPs, those GPs will also have lots of no's. And they will be like, well, man, they were not interested in us. Or maybe they were interested in them. And so the number of other GPs that will offer to make intros to me to either one of their LPs or someone who said no to them, and and that's fine because the, the 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 perspective that I have on on capital formation, if I can call it that, uh, in in the venture uh, world, is that you know like you as a GP, you're not the only one with the problem. What is your problem? You as a GP, your problem is you have opportunity and you need capital to fund those opportunities, right? So that that's your problem, but the LP also has a problem. The LP has capital, and they need opportunities to fund to provide the returns that they need. So so the thing is there are two problems. and then what you need to do is you need to be in the in the middle and facilitate the process. Yeah, yeah. And how you facilitate the process is that you you find the natural pools of capital that are natural for you and redirect the natural pools of capital that are unnatural for you, but natural to someone else, you do that. And if you redirect, then what we can do is, you know, I mean, obviously, a capital formation is a highly inefficient process uh, today, but there are multiple people that are working on on making that uh, process efficient. But, you know, like, I'm doing my part in trying to do that. And so, like, I mean, actually, just on that capital formation, if you are interested in this topic, or if any of the viewers are interested in this topic, I would recommend that you follow Samir Kaji. So uh, Samir is a, the co-founder of Allocate. Yeah. And so I'm an, uh, I'm a privileged uh, Samir. Let me uh, invest um, uh, as a small uh, angel in his in, in, in Allocate. So I'm, I'm, I'm very pleased for that. Um, but I learned a lot, uh, you know, from Samir uh, about venture before even meeting him, <laughs> you know, just by listening to his podcast. And, um, so I learned a lot about capital formation, and and so what Allocate is doing is is actually trying to reduce the friction, uh, which is why I invested as as, as an angel. Um, I'm excited about what they're building.
1: Okay, so speaking about Samir, um, you, you, you've been you've reposted a couple of his social media posts, yeah. and uh, as well yeah. as a few others lately, and uh, their their tone is you know this. Time is different from what what we were at, like just yeah. eighteen months ago. We are in a post-zero interest rate world, so VC yep. returns, you know, are are being evaluated in a different way. And and the general tone, to be honest, of these posts is kind of pessimistic, uh, or at least that's how they strike me. Are is that like a correct evaluation for me, or or am I kind of getting the yeah the vibe wrong?
0: So, um, so yeah, I think, I I mean, I would disagree with you on uh, that they are pessimistic. I think they're not pessimistic. It's just think of them uh, like I think you need to have a specific perspective on them. So let me give you, and, and I'm glad that you brought this up because I'm going to use this as a segue to talk about something that I wanted to talk about earlier, which is, um, you know, the, the, the zero interest rate uh, environment. Um, so when I was a founder in the 90s, the interest rates were higher the when I was a like uh, you know when I was in in Atisalat, the interest rates were higher and so like it was only recently in the recent history the last ten years is that when we 've had this period of low interest rate environments but when you think about the some of the most iconic companies on the planet, they were born um, in Normal interest rate environments, not zero interest rate environments. So my the point that I'm making, and I think that the point that I think Samir is making, is uh, if I may, you know, like uh, sort of interpret what 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 I think his message is, is um, the anomaly was the last couple of years. So we need to delete that anomaly from our minds, uh, from our from our brains, because it was an anomaly. And you need, to, and what I'm saying is that look at the look at the larger arc of venture capital, and don't look at the last three years. And the problem is that there's so many people that were exposed to and came into venture capital. I, you know, people call them tourists. So many tourists came into the uh, to, to venture, and mm-hmm. they don't really understand venture, and they applied their own lived experiences. Uh, about what they thought venture was, and then they applied it, and and they drove because of zero interest rates. Um, they, they drove it up like this, and so, but that is the anomaly. So I think what Samir saying is don't look at that, and because that is not a reasonable expectation, and that's okay if you, if you don't agree with Samir, but the point is what Samir saying is. If you want to invest in top quartile, top decile funds, then you're not going to be able to do that if you have the wrong expectations. Because what you're, what he's saying is, you have a key, potential key into this ecosystem to get access to these funds. But if you have the wrong expectations, then then your key isn't going to fit. lock and you're going to miss out on these opportunities and i think that that's kind of like so it's it's more i would say an education uh that 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 he's talking about than than anything else and i think that that is what to touch upon something that you asked me about earlier is one of the reasons why i talk about the financial crisis of 97 and and the dot-com boom and bust and whatever is that venture is a long game and you have to look at the uh, history and you have to project into the future. It doesn't mean that you can copy paste history and apply it to the future. But what you can say is that, you know, the future is unpredictable and volatile, and you don't know, but there are certain things that you learn from your history from your past that inform you to be able to more accurately uh, assess the potential future. And so. And that's one of the things that uh, I would say that you know, Samir talks about. But the other thing that Samir talks about is uh, is something. And by the way, I passionately agree about uh, you know the, the these views. That's why I, I reshare them. Is that this is one of the best times in history to be investing in venture anywhere in the world, and because you have had this, there's been no other time than ever before that you have had so much capital available in every corner of the planet for this asset class. But then at the same time, and this is sort of tied to our, our thesis of sukna, which is that at, at no time have you had such compounding technological shifts that are taking place. And let me unpack what I just said is, so, you know, when I started, uh, early, you know, there was early internet, early SaaS. Um, and then we had this thing called big data. And, you know, then, then it's sort of like AI, ML. Um, and then you had like the cloud, you know, you have data centers and, and cloud computing. But these are all maturing. They are not mature. They're maturing ecosystems. And so what, what's happened, in, and there's a couple of reasons for it. One is technological advancements uh, that have happened recently in, in many cases, and I don't need to repeat any of them. But there's a lot of uh, technological advancements that have happened, right? So in AIML, in computing, in, um, uh, in, in networks. So what that means is that you've got this like, and, so, and then you've got cloud and SaaS, which are old hat, right? So like people used to look down and like, oh, you're a SaaS investor. Like, oh, you're old school. You're a cloud investor. Oh, that's old. You're a mobile investor. that's old, right? But no, that's actually that's actually now even more relevant because what's happened is that there is this um you have data that is distributed and available uh, uh, more than ever before. You have more data available and and it's available and it's accessible thanks to networks. It's available and thanks to computing speeds and network speeds it's available faster and it's able to be processed faster. And then you've got uh, software technologies like artificial intelligence machine learning that are able to crunch and assess and analyze this data. And so what that means is that it's almost like a compounding flywheel of technology and maturity of of infrastructure. And so like one of the things that I think about, like when I when I talk to like the VCs in in the Valley and they would look down on, on my telecoms sort of background, uh, you know the reality is like, you know the 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 everything that you see in software wouldn't exist because it needs the hardware to travel on, right? So like, don't look down upon. And so my point is like, you need somebody to build the infrastructure and the hardware to then, you know, like create the flywheel of software. And so like, and we are at that very moment. And so. I feel like this is one of the most exciting moments in history. Now we're a little bit early. I think people are very, very excited about OpenAI and, and 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 GPT and and uh, you know uh, large language models. But like I think it's like a little bit early. I think uh, we've been much more cautious on uh, in that space. Um, but you know it, it is very, very exciting, and we're we're you know, and that's one of the reasons why I guess you know. I'm, I'm a full-time fund manager.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. At this time, no, um, I I can't agree with you more again. <laughs> I think the timing is is perfect, especially for an early stage uh, yeah. fund. There's just so much happening. There are inflection points on the technological level, on the um, on the even the social level, and I would add, um, you know, that 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 it's like. On the seriousness level, because there were a lot of tourists, as you mentioned, and the they've been somewhat cleared out. Uh, I just saw a number that there were like, there's a, over 50% drop in founders, for example, sorry, founders uh, over the last year in the US. So that's actually a good thing, uh, in my opinion, because these are like the builders. And yeah, uh, yeah I mean, I, I agree. It's It's just great timing.
0: Yeah, Yeah. it is great timing. Now, obviously, nothing such, uh, no big opportunity is ever easy. So, my view is it's hard to fundraise today, relatively. So, it's all relative, right? So, for the last couple of years, yes, it's harder to raise for everybody. But is the opportunity set big enough to dedicate and focus uh, my efforts on? Yes. Therefore I'm going to do it. And that's why I'm here. And that's why I'm doing yeah. it. And so the market opportunities there, is it hard? Yes. Is it harder? Yes, it is. But oh, is yeah, it worth much it? Harder. Mm-hmm. And so the, I think the the missionaries who have deep conviction are going to stick in this. And I think that those people need to do this. And, and I, I would like to see more fund managers in, in the region come out. Now, what is cool. I, one thing I also wanted to add uh, which is kind of interesting, which is, um, in the in the MENA region, um, you know, like there's not enough uh, VC funds, there's not enough uh, fund managers and angel investors. We need more. Uh, it's funny, like I'm saying this, but I'm asking for competition, but because I think when you look at the amount of capital that is invested, so capital is available more than before, but it's not enough because we need more capital percentage of gdp we need more investors and we need more investors with different perspectives and different lens you know we co-invest with a lot of vc funds and and as while i love co-investing with different vc funds because we learn from their perspective which is different from our perspective which is why we have different funds and different brands but there's not enough. And it's too small of an ecosystem where I know everybody and everybody knows everybody. And it's like, you know, we need, I mean, it's nice to see new faces, but at the same time, you, I think we need to expand it because there's so many missed opportunities that aren't being funded because the people that would see that uh, you know opportunity aren't there. I don't understand it. And, and maybe my friend uh, over there doesn't understand it. And so like, so there is this thing. But, and so one thing I also wanted to say is that this is also different in another way and that is going back to something i was talking about earlier which is the pandemic so earlier so like the the one time in history where the entire planet had a similar shared lived experience is i cannot like quantify the impact of that but i'm seeing the impact of that because what that means is that never before has it been easy so easy On a relative basis to build a regional or global company from anywhere because today you have people who are decision-makers of large corporates or governments that have the same perspective as you and I have on the need for technology and the need to sort of use technology to solve whatever problems it's solving and, and there's this openness globally and so what that means is that you're able to potentially scale from you know Saudi to Pakistan and India which is like for example like uh, one of our companies classera has done that they went you know they're they're actually in India and they're in Pakistan and then they're in so many other markets and and they're selling uh their services so and and that is so cool because i I didn't see that happening before you know um and we invested in a uh, it, in a company uh, that was, you know, like here and in Ukraine and in the US, the Ukrainian founders, and, you know, they have business in Saudi, they have business in Canada and US and in, in Singapore and they're global companies. And, and there's multiple reasons for that. But my point is like, I think, um, you know, this is a very exciting time. And that's why I talk about this digital transformation um, that is global across industries, across sectors, and across the globe. And so the the trick is to find market characteristics about your startup, uh, which makes it successful in, say, Dubai or in Riyadh or Abu Dhabi or Cairo, and find other markets that have similar market characteristics that you can then now go to and target, and you will find that it's not... Increasingly hard to do it now. It's the difficulty is just the local cultural and language barriers, maybe, but but that's it. Not like oh, they're just not ready and open as we are, because that's that's no longer the case. Now, obviously, this is my hypothesis, and I'm seeing some early signs, and I'd love to believe that that's true. And we're seeing it in our portfolio companies where they're actually growing. Um, across, you know, they're building, they're actually expanding into the US, some of them, some of them are expanding into Africa or across other uh, Asia, other markets. And and this is really cool and really exciting.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, It's just the sky's the limit, right?
0: Yeah. Well, actually, I would always say, and this is something I said when I was um, eight years old, um, that sounds sad if the sky is the limit. I think there is no limit. In in my this has always been my perspective as a child. As, as sorry yeah. to like to, to, <laughs> to like on uh, you there, but like yeah, I've always yeah. had this perspective. With, like, oh, that is so sad and That's so.
1: Tawful only the sky.
0: <laughs> yeah, there is no limit.
1: Yeah, but I mean, yeah. when you were eight years old, you probably thought the sky was like ten meters above you or something. You know, like so, uh, uh, a ceiling in, to the. Uh...
0: <laughs> So I grew up, I was born in 1975 and I, I grew up in, you know, like many different countries, including like Africa and the Middle East and, and, uh, and, you know, we didn't have access to a lot of the home comforts or, or whatever. And and we didn't have, you know, like cinemas and TVs or chocolate or whatever. So, you know, I had a lot of encyclopedias and a lot of thinking. So my, my, my mother used to call me, uh, you know, uh, a daydreamer of Olympic proportions. If only there was Olympics for daydreamers, and and I guess daydreamers is like kind of how she used to think of me. But I was kind of like a, I guess a little philosopher thinker because I had no friends, uh, <laughs> and um, um, and I was pretty shy, so I wasn't very good at making friends. And so like, I guess what I'm saying is that um, I I was very lucky because my parents were. You know, one of the people that fell to the wiles of a encyclopedia salesperson, which, you know, you had in those days. And they bought them and I went through them and I, you know, got into like philosophy and history of so many different countries and cultures, which was so fascinating. And and I came across the, the concept of, you know, like the universe, which is not static, it's expanding. And so to me it was like oh, wow, like, I mean, long after I'm dead, the universe will still be expanding. Now, maybe humanity will not exist, but that's okay. I, My grains of whatever are going to be absorbed within that. I mean, it's it sounds pretty morbid and horrible, but, like, I mean, I was an eight-year-old child, so, like, man, like, <laughs> that, that was... And and that's it was how it went weird. down. Yeah, and yeah. then, um, so, I, I mean, the reason why I'm saying this is because like one of the early signs of us thinking that the universe is expanding is when we yeah. discovered
1: redshift frequency yeah, yeah so the,
0: the waves were like there's moving away from us, and so when light's moving away from us that means it's, it's i mean it's a hypothesis, i mean the thesis but a hypothesis but um that was it so i'm I'm pretty uh you know yeah believer in that perspective, so
1: so the sky's not the limit uh but there is no you way. know this is a question suggested by uh, Tariq fahim actually our common friend who introduces uh he, he he wanted me to ask you what you saw as like the fundamental consistent flaws in the ecosystem
0: fundamental flaws i'm not sure
1: if there's any background between you guys on this but
0: <laughs> oh, oh, so uh, so Tariq and i talk all the time about this uh, particular topic and, and, and not just our. I mean, like a, a lot of, um, uh, you know, a lot of us talk about, you know, how could we improve the the ecosystem? Um, I mean, there's many, but maybe I will talk about um, some of the things that I think, uh, you know, was the last conversation Tariq and I had, and that was around. So, you know, like when I think of the Middle East, North Africa region. Um, And when VCs pitch Middle East, North Africa, they think of it and they pitch it as a homogenous like region. But the reality is it's not right. So it's a collection of many different countries with unique cultures and unique dialects so it's actually quite diverse and quite complex with with its own set of laws its own set of their own set of priorities and so it's actually quite complex there right and 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 that is inherently you know like one of the challenges that we face is that it's not easy to scale and this is this was true before and it's still true today it's not easy to scale across markets and which is why we focus on specific markets that we have relationships in, and we kind of focus in those markets because if you have relationships in those markets, you can actually have your finger on the pulse of that market, and you can maybe potentially get deal flow out of that uh, market. And 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 also, you need to understand what those markets are, and then how can they go from this market to that market and that market, and which markets matter. And so, that's just like a, I'm just like setting up the you know the context uh, of of what I'm going to talk about. But one of the challenges that I face, and one of the things that I get really frustrated about, is the um, the competitive nature of the um, support for ecosystems. Um, because wh- when it comes to borders and you know the real economy, I understand every reason, everything for why those exist, and there's nothing wrong with it, and it, like I accept it and I understand it. The challenge is that technology knows no boundaries. Uh, technology, the internet—I mean, you know—you you can't. I mean, you, know, you. I mean, theoretically, you could do anything. But the reality is the w- the world that we live in today. You know, you and I are using the same platform today, right now, and I'm in Dubai, and you're in Cairo, and we're both. Uh, uh, you are in Cairo, right? So I <laughs> just assume yeah, there. <laughs> yes. So, so you know we we're in two different cities uh, in two different time zones and we're using the same uh, platform and I think this is kind of like a demonstration of 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 technology um, used across platforms and across across geographies and so like the thing that I find most frustrating is you know, when when we're trying to develop an ecosystem, one of the things that, at least, my message to um, uh, you know the the parties that are supporting ecosystems is that I believe that they should be taking a regional view, a regional perspective to it, uh, to to developing the ecosystem. Now, of course, you have to develop your own ecosystem. Of course, I mean that is what you are there for. You have to develop, you know, like what they say, like charity begins at home. Well, development also begins at home. You first, Mm -hmm. you take care of, you know, your child and you take care of yourself before you take care of your child and then you take care of your community. And that is super, super important. And that makes sense. But having a lens and maybe a pocket or a bucket for regional is super, super important. And I think I would also... And, and I might piss off some people. I think there's also a lens for global because we do not exist in isolation. We are a regional ecosystem, but we are a regional ecosystem that is part of a global ecosystem or ecosystems. And so in my mind, if you are like a fund of funds, for example, um, you, know, you invest in local VCs and local startups and that makes a lot of sense. But you also, I believe should be having a bucket uh, for regional funds and and I think that should also be part of you the package and I think there should also be a pack bucket for global funds and and I'll explain why I say that is because and I believe it I put my money where my mouth is so um, I invest my money into uh, as an LP into other funds when I need to talk to somebody um, or I need a founder uh, one of my you know, founders needs help. I'm able to tap into my relationships that I've built as an LP um, to maybe learn, uh, get insights into what's going on into their market or in their industry, their sector, or sometimes even um, connect them to uh, through someone through their network to somebody that can help me. So, for example, you know, th- th- there's this uh, fund uh, called the Treasury where I'm an LP, um, and and so the the, f- the fund is is the co-founders of the fund. Um, are uh eli uh and jeff and they uh, eli was the co-founder of betterment uh if you remember betterment betterments uh you know like uh one of the early sort of unicorns in the fintech space and the and jeff was the co-founder of acorns which is another sort of um uh you know early uh, fintech unicorn these guys were at the super early stage when there was no infrastructure so they actually had to build the infrastructure that to solve so many infrastructure layer problems for the fintech ecosystem Um, And so now they've got this FinTech fund based in New York. And I have learned so much from just listening to their journey about FinTech. But also when I I got them to come to, you know, to the Middle East, like Forrest actually is also an LP and and, and Forrest got them, uh, you know, like uh, meetings in Riyadh. So they came to Riyadh and like, and while they're there doing their own thing, Um, we were able to pull them out and have a session with them and, uh, you know, um, the fintech uh, community in Riyadh, for example, where there were literally founders who were building the betterment for Mina and the acorns for Mina in the room and were able to tap into direct knowledge. And do do you understand what I'm saying? Like, and and that is... Super important, right? So we don't exist in isolation. And I think that it sounds counterintuitive and counterproductive because people with, I've heard some some GPs say to me, what are you doing? Why are you letting capital flow outside? And I'm not saying that's what I'm doing. I'm saying that, and and by the way, like I'm quite pleased with what, like um, uh, what my LPs have done, uh, my LPs in Riyadh have done, is that they actually have that open perspective. They are actually investing in, saudi funds they're investing in regional funds and they're investing in global funds and then they understand that this is their whole relationship and it's 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 something that i'm see i see happening in saudi arabia but i I, i'm not seeing it happen in many other markets and that is a little bit of a frustration and and maybe i spent too much time talking about that but that is one of the things that i think about the i mean i can talk about other sort of frustrations as well Mm -hmm. um but um One of the things that I think about is, um, you know, like, there's this belief that there's not enough talent in the MENA region. And I think that I disagree with that. And the reason why I disagree with that is because if there was no talent in the MENA region, then we wouldn't have hotels or telecom operators or banks or, I mean, who do you think runs these companies? These are people, human beings. And what is talent? Well, I mean, human beings, professionals that have a, some domain expertise and some operational yeah. expertise. People so doing stuff. Talent,
1: mm-hmm.
0: People doing stuff, right? So the, the, my point is, like, talent exists, but how do you repurpose that talent for venture, well, you need to create an environment that makes it conducive for them to do something. Yeah. so. So, um, if they're going to take a risk in their career, and they're going to leave their um, uh, their job and go and do something, then they need to make sure that there's capital available for them throughout the process uh, of of their of their journey. You know, early stage capital exists, but then we don't have we don't actually have growth stage capital, sufficient growth stage capital. Um, So, yeah, so look, uh, so the challenge is that, you know, if a founder is going to quit their job and go and try to solve a problem that they've experienced uh, in in their environment that isn't being solved by anybody else, and they have some unique insight into solving that problem, then they need to be, um, you know, sort of incentivized to do that. And in order for them to incentivize, you know, like to be to do that and take that risk, um, capital needs to be available now. So we solve and, and a lot of my peers solve the early part of that problem. So there are some angel investors and angel groups and some early stage, uh, you know, pre-seed seed stage investors, and that, that's cool. I Believe that there's not enough of them. So we need more of those. But then the challenge is that some of the best potential people out there aren't coming into the ecosystem because you don't have that uh, level of capital available throughout the journey. So, you know, we have this Death Valley um, uh, situation at growth stage. So when you look at Series A's, you will be able to find uh, sort of, you know, uh, enough uh, investors. But, you know, post Series A, and I'm not even talking about Series B, just post Series A and Series B and C, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a real problem because there are not enough institutional investors. When I say institutional investors, venture firms, VC firms or, or growth-stage private equity firms that can lead around. So what they need to do is you need to have, again, this hodgepodge of getting a couple of million here, a couple of million there, and you've got like 10 or 15 people together because if you need to raise this much money to get to that outcome, then you need to raise this much money. And so the point is like, how do you do that? And so what's, what's, what's really tragic is that these companies grow and then they get to like A... And then their growth stalls, and the reason why their growth stalls is because there's not enough capital available. Now, obviously, it makes them more resilient. Uh, they're, they're, it makes them resilient, and, and they make more sustainable businesses, and that's that's great. But at the same time, at what cost? And that opportunity cost is there. And so, my, in in my mind, there needs to be more capital available um, at at the at the growth stage, and and. That is something that I'm, I'm looking for because I think when that happens, and then of course private equity, and we're starting to see corporates now coming in and, and sort of looking at you know acquiring companies and and sort of investing. So I think we need to see more of that corporate sort of uh, M and and corporate VC activity, and uh, we need to see more private equity funds. But we right now the the growth equity because I think when we start to see that stack, then I think we will see true. I mean, I, I will say to you. Look, I wish, and by the way, this is kind of interesting. So, when I interviewed so many other VCs, uh, you know, in in the Bay Area, when I asked them, like, you know, how they fell into venture, they were like, "Well, that was not my intention. My intention was to uh, build another something, and I I couldn't figure out what I was passionate about that I wanted to build. So they kind of fell into venture, and you know, they liked it, and they. Uh, and, and you know, now now 10 years, 15 years, 20 years later, they're, they're VCs. And that's actually what happened with me because I actually did not leave Atisalat with the view that I was going to become a VC. I left Atisalat because I wanted to be part of the venture ecosystem where I wanted to build something and I was hungry to build. But unfortunately, there wasn't capital or or investors that understood what I was interested in in this environment at that time. I became a VC because I thought I will come across teams that I can partner up with or join, or I will come up with an idea and I will sort of build something. And and that was the idea. And my story is, funny enough, quite a common story in venture where, you know, that was impossible. And I was a serial entrepreneur. I had built multiple products. Um, that opportunity wasn't available, uh, you know, to me at the time because the ecosystem wasn't ready. Now, boohoo, you know, I mean, my life is pretty awesome. So, like, I have nothing to complain about. But the point that I'm making is, and this is from a purely rational, you know, like, so disassociated perspective, is that there may be other people that were like me that yep. had experienced entrepreneurial, um, you know, uh, had entrepreneurial experience had the opportunity potentially to build something, but they aren't willing to take that risk because they believe that this is a regional opportunity and there's just not enough capital available. And, you know, one of the challenges I've seen with a lot of startups is that uh, you've got, you know, say two startups and they have competitors, they're competitors of each other. And what will happen is that one startup will go and they will uh, take up the, um, uh sovereigns or or some the key uh you know uh, fund because there's just not enough capital so they'll tie that up this startup may be better and may be great but they're dead because now this startup needs to find investors that don't exist because they've tied up and they can't compete uh, they can't invest in competitive and so like that's a pretty messed up ecosystem. that's, that's a lost
1: opportunity isn't it for i mean for the ecosystem up. at large
0: because I think that yeah. more players could be sustained within that ecosystem. So I guess, now this is not a criticism. It is, I am just reflecting back to you what I see as the state of our ecosystem. And this is a normal thing because even in Silicon Valley, this situation existed you know, many decades ago. So we're just, we're early in our journey, but... I think mean, getting back to something around expectations, I think there needs to be a realignment of expectations. When I hear people saying we want to invest and create, you know, unicorns, and I think that that is something that scares me because I think we're too early. I mean, it's. I think they're right in what they're saying, which is that we need to create success stories and we need to help success stories uh, so that we can encourage people out. But that is only one part of that equation, and the other part of the equation is capital and support, and then, but, but the problem is how do you get growth equity firms? Growth equity firms raise a lot more capital. First of all, this capital needs to be available for them, right? Second of all, you cannot have a growth equity firm that's just going to invest in one country. So by definition and by default, these growth equity firms need to be pan-regional. And then the other thing is that you need to allow these growth equity firms to make LP uh, uh, investments, take LP positions in early stage venture funds, because those are the people that are, there's an alignment of interest for potential deal flow co-investment opportunities. And so that is how you build sort of a healthy, you know, like uh, something that isn't talked about very often, but like in the Bay Area, you know, a lot of the venture funds that you will see were backed and supported not just as LPs, but actually even operationally, like funding for um, you know the general partners to be able to quit full their full time jobs and do this by other GPs who backed uh, people and took a tiny piece. So, like a lot of the firms that uh, that you will see were somehow backed by other other GPs. Yeah,
1: so, yeah absolutely. I
0: mean, many other uh, issues, but like I would just say like it's early days we need more capital we need more managers uh we need more uh you know support here and we need less we need more of a regional perspective than a local perspective and right. but you know the good news is like at least my lps are quite open to that and i, I see yeah that, so I'm happy. And,
1: and the good news it's it's also part of the phase the ecosystem is in it's a more uh, it's a less uh, old uh, ecosystem shall we say and uh and it's natural that, you know, you, you need to, this will build up and this is the way, these are the growth pains, so to speak. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, We're in
0: the midst so, of our growing pains.
1: So maybe uh, I'll move to a final question before the quick fire round on a more, like, uh, stri- uh, more optimistic kind of uh, note, which is even though you said, you know, we shouldn't be focusing on the unicorns, but I mean, hopefully there will be more than one unicorn uh, over the next few years, in from the region, so where where do you think which industries do you think they'll be operating in?
0: Um, uh, across many industries, I I, I would say so. Um, you know, like there's a bunch of so obviously fintech easy to see a couple of fintech uh, companies today, but I think like uh, more so I think we'll see a lot of sort of you know opportunities coming out of the fintech space um you know in the software infrastructure layer so you know like the 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 software infrastructure SaaS sort of layer uh we'll start to see companies that are able to you know generate significant revenues very profitable revenues uh you know across the region um you know, in in the CPaaS communication uh, platform as a service, I'm I'm I'm, uh, I'm plugging here because I'm an angel investor. Um, but you know, I I, I you know we're going to see in in many different industries, right? So I, I think it's across the board. It's just the timing is right, but sadly, you know, we could accelerate it if if, if we had more capital uh, available. But um, um yeah, like it's going to happen we're seeing a lot of interesting companies uh, come out. I think now is a good time because um, I think we'll start to see some acceleration there and I'm hopeful of this so every time there's a downturn one of the first things I think about is market consolidation this is my mA hat coming on right and so there, there was this um, there was this company that I remember investing in um, and they were a, a B2B, Uh, Software B2B SaaS company in a specific vertical that I'm not going to mention. And then there was another company that was a fantastic company also, but it was a consumer company in the same vertical. And so what happened was that this consumer company in that vertical um, started seeing this B2B SaaS company in that same vertical as potentially complementary. And so what they did is they started building products to compete with that because they thought well we could be soup to nuts you know like own that whole space and these guys started looking at competing uh, building a competing consumer product um, the the problem is that the dna of so you have two different set of founders their dna is different this the dna of this consumer uh, company is like, they understand this. And I'm not an investor in that, but this person is a super man in that space. This is like their superpower is. And then this other team where I was an investor in the B2B SaaS company, this is their superpower. And then what they did is they raised money to compete with those guys. And and in my perspective, my first thing was like, no, don't raise money to compete. Raise money and merge and consolidate. Because clearly you're... You feel like there's not enough. I mean, you know, when you start to look at adjacencies, that means that your growth is slowing in your core, and if your growth is slowing in your core, you start to think start to think about adjacencies instead of raising capital to compete. And it's like a downward spiral because both of them raise money and and no.
1: raise to the bottom
0: tens of millions of dollars. You know, like, and and you're not going to be able to do it because they failed in the B2B SaaS because it's not their DNA. And they failed in the consumer because that wasn't their DNA. And what they eventually, interesting enough, what they eventually did was actually merge where it was an acquisition. But I wish that they had merged uh, in, in, in like, in, yeah. in, without all, the wasted. Yeah. They, oh, without all the wasted capital and also the failure that both of them felt um in that and think about all the people that they hired and then they had to let go because of that i mean you know how about like seeing up so many people uh you know sort of lives and trajectories i mean obviously they learned a lot but still you know like um in my mind this is a great time for consolidation because there are all these potential competitors out there but sometimes i think that this is an opportunity for us to make one plus one makes five where you consolidate um and 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 grow. And I think what happens there is that then you work together, and you actually accelerate because you're not thinking so much about your competition, but you're actually thinking much more about providing a, a more seamless customer experience to your customers. And so when you do that, your value—you know—you're providing greater value, and then you start to see an acceleration and more stickiness with your customers. And um, and that is how you will see like these big sort of players. Uh, And so there's a bunch of companies that I have met with where I've turned them down and I've said no to them. But what I said to them is like, um, I think you should just stop. You should stop fundraising. You you need to start talking to player ABC and talk to corporate 123 and either exit and sell yourself to one of these guys or merge with those guys and sell yourself to those guys because this is the best outcome. And, and, you know, remember venture is a long term game. This is not a failure. You have learned a lot. And you will go and you will merge and you will like a couple of years, you'll do this and then you'll be out in the market. But now you're a founder that has actually had an exit that that is an exit or a merger. And then on top of that, um, you've learned so much more about integrating and building a complex organization out of that. And so, like, imagine what you're going to do next. And that is, now, I'm not saying that I invest in people thinking, oh, I'm investing in what you do next. No, no, no. I want you to like, focus on what I've invested in, like uh, b- creating value there. But my point is, it's easy for me to say that because I'm, I'm saying, no, I'm not investing in you, but I am excited to see what you're going to build next. And I'm keeping tabs on these people. And, they, and some of them have actually done what, what I've asked them or what I've suggested to them and have opened doors and been helpful to them. Um, I'm actually really, really excited. For these people what they're going to do next in in three years but also the companies that they have that have they've merged into um right. and what they're going to do even though i'm not i'm a i'm a i'm a participant observing right i have no economic yeah. exposure good for the ecosystem it's it's, it's so yeah. one good for the ecosystem those people i mean so like we're benefiting so much from kareem's success where so much of those kareem uh, alumni are coming out and and we've, um, you know, we've invested in so many companies, uh, that have come out of, uh, of Kareem and, and, and other, uh, companies, uh, in the region.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um,
0: Founders but they are serial operators and they understand uh, the journey uh, a little bit better.
1: Absolutely. And, uh, I think it's, uh, I could like talk to you forever, but I'm gonna like stop myself and go into the quick file questions. Go otherwise ahead. you know you you are going to miss dinner as well <laughs> as lunch yeah so yeah. Um, okay the the quick five question i just ask a quick question you give me your answer the first is what book or books do you like to recommend to others
0: um oh gosh this is um this is a really difficult question because it depends on where you're at um uh, you know in your in your journey and what you're thinking about so i i'll i'll, I'll give you two, uh, suggestions, but I'll, 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 give you this. Um, first of all, like, given that we're in the venture community, uh, clearly you need to be reading, uh, you know, and I should be telling you about one of those books and I, and I will. Um, but I would also encourage you, uh, to encourage your viewers to read a book that is not part of your, say, job or your um you know the venture community and you know by the way and i say this but i'm 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 a victim of this and i'm guilty of this which is that i'm just so wound up and wrapped into this whole venture ecosystem i live breathe and read you know venture stuff but i force myself to, to to every now and then read other things and and that informs me uh you know in ways that you know you cannot imagine, and so um, a, a book that sort of um, I read that is nothing to do with venture, uh, but I think is an interesting sort of observation um, uh, of of humanity, shall we say, is um, now I, I don't want to mess it up. Mess this up, so I'm gonna sort of find the name of the book of my thing. Uh, but it's like it's it's called Weird, um, but. I would say it's by, um, uh, yeah. So it's called The Weirdest People in the World. Um, and WEIRD stands for Western, Educated, Industrialized, Rich, uh, uh, Democratic. And it was like a fascinating book for me. It's a very thick book, but fascinating book for me because it helped me to contextualize and frame and understand the environment that we live in. Uh, today and why we live in that environment. Because you know, when when, when you think about um, you know like the Western world versus the Eastern world and the Northern Hemisphere versus the Southern Hemisphere, you know there is this feeling of inferiority that you know people of our hemisphere and region feel because we you know like aren't necessarily as um, successful as people are in, in in the Western or Northern hemispheres. And, um, and I think that this um, puts into perspective why some of those things exist. And I think that was actually fascinating for me. Um, fascinating for me from a from a human perspective, from a personal development perspective, but also interesting enough from a perspective of like if you understand your environment and you're, you're I'm a student uh, of my environment, right? That's kind of what I'm a student of like everything basically. So like, I'm constantly thinking about how to understand my environment. And I think this helped me to understand what are some of the building blocks that we can focus on that are the drivers of how to bring our uh, sort of, um, uh, you know, ecosystem forward. So that's that's one. Um, and in another book, I mean, there's many good books that I think that most founders should read. And I'm, I'm sure like people have, um, uh, you know, talked about like, you know, the hard thing about hard things or venture deal um there's a book that i'm actually very excited about um that um i was privileged enough to um uh to to, to sort of get early sort of access to uh only because i was like some dumbass guy who didn't know anything and in, uh, ended up being lucky enough um uh, to uh, sorry i'm just going to tell you the name of the book um uh, but i want to tell you the name of the the um uh, the author uh, as well so like i was when i was early in Adesalat, i was i was trying to get into you know sort of venture and i was thinking maybe i can find like jv opportunities that you know we could look at because there was there's so many different aspects of how i wanted to engage and so i was really really lucky um where i came across tony uh fadel and uh and Tony's the yeah. Uh, tony's the the, he used to work at apple and he was actually the like uh, the design engineer uh for you know the the ipod and the early iphone and then he left and he built nest and i started to talk to him and his 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 team uh uh you know um around next and and nest and and i was really really excited about nest and I was almost in, I was also interested in like investing in, in Nest and, and then you know we were going through this whole thing and it was it was lovely because he's a super nice guy. Like I'm nobody in the Middle East and he's like this really super awesome guy and he's like uh you know introduced me to his team and and we're talking all over email by the way. And um um what was interesting was like and then he goes silent and they're all silent. And then you know, like Google <laughs> acquired Nest uh and and so like you know that that story was over and but I, I sort of kept in touch with him. Uh, well, I'm actually not great at keeping in touch, but I kind of like reinitiated that contact. And when I did, he said, "Actually, I'm writing a book, and it's called Build." Yeah, build. And I I, I'm, I haven't read it yet, by the way. But I'm so have, excited <laughs> this book. Yes. So he actually sent like uh, like he gave me an early sort of thing to, to. And I'm such a dumbass because I I should have like been one of the first people reading it because I had such. It. And it's just like one of those books that's stacked up because I've got like a big uh, stack of um, yeah.
1: uh-huh. books to. Read. No, I, I mean I, I recommend it since okay, I, well, I read well, it. I, so thank you.
0: For, uh, <laughs> and now Tony's book, get around uh, to reading
1: it and and, and give Tony um, you know some feedback. And I, I think you know, also what he's doing, I think he's now based in France, as he mentions in the book. You know, with his new funds, yeah. it sounds really cool.
0: Yeah yeah he's he's pretty active in the ecosystem and and uh, I'm yeah. actually due to catch up with him uh in the nice. coming months i need to find out what what he's up to he's cooking cool. something yeah um
1: uh, okay so that's that's for the books so we have build in, in weird and w- okay who do you think we should have uh, as a guest on the podcast or guest or guests
0: uh guests um uh, gosh, I mean, uh, from the region or or from outside yeah, the region, I mean, or,
1: relevant to the start to the Arabian to the Arab startups uh, ecosystem,
0: or relevant the MENA to the ecosystem. Uh, MENA, yeah. um ecosystem. Um, gosh, uh, there are so many names that come to mind. Um, well, I mean, so like this is gonna sound terrible, but like, um, uh, so I, I feel guilty. Uh, for doing this so but i'm going to do it anyway um so Walid albala my partner i learn from him every day he's so insightful uh and so like I, I know i mean this sounds i feel really really guilty and doing this but i honestly think that i think he has such different perspectives to share that, than me so i know that it's like the same brand and the same firm but he has a very different perspective and i that i think he would be great uh you know sort of as as a uh, on 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 the podcast, um, I think there's so many interesting people to sort of uh, choose from. Um, this is a hard one, man. You've 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 given me. Um, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And maybe I'll, I'll come up with a couple of ideas yeah. maybe later as I get to think. Yeah.
1: Okay, so um, like I like to close the podcast on a note of gratitude. So, uh, what is a gift someone has given you? that has had a large effect on your life?
0: Um, Wow. So um, I think that is an extremely long list. Um, So, you know, like, uh, so I today am a, a, a composition and a collection of every single person I have met in my entire life. And And so every single person that I have met or interacted with or seen a couple of times passing in an airport or a conference have somehow impacted me and are a part of me. So I guess I have enormous gratitude for like my life that I've had so far where I have had the opportunity to travel from a very early age. To more places than anywhere else, uh, and 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 meet more people than most, and then be privileged enough to like have this life where I'm constantly traveling and meeting new people and and uh, people of, of different sort of uh, perspectives and persuasions, and um, so I'm incredibly gifted, uh, like um, uh, you know, grateful to to, to have had. All of these people there um and so i think it's unfair for me to pick any one but i will say that I, i'll give you an example of one particular one uh, not because of the person but because of the act and so like a friend of mine uh, mohammed al-mojil um uh, he's based in london and um he uh He's also he's actually somebody that you should have on on your podcast. So Mohammed is a very interesting uh, character, and I, I would encourage you to have him. He's different. Um, he's been involved and dabbled in in, in sort of the ecosystem, uh, but you know, like he's in the private equity space now. But um, so so Mohammed Al and I hang out every now and then, um, and so we were in London, uh, we're hanging out. And, you know, every now and then we swap books. And so he gave me this book and I picked up the book and, uh, you know, we were met in German Street. And and then we walked, uh, I walked, uh, after lunch, I walked um, down uh, Piccadilly. And by the time I hit the Ritz, I had already finished the first chapter of this book. And this book had such an impact on, on me. It's called King Leopold's Ghost. And um, it it has nothing to do with venture. Uh, But the book had an impact on me because I grew up in Africa um, at a time of heightened African nationalism. So when I was growing up, my heroes were Robert Mugabe and Kenneth Kounda, who, you know, like I'm sure you may have heard of, are people who don't have a very positive, uh, you know, sort of reputation. But when I was growing up, um, these were... The, my idols uh, of, you know, African nationalism. And, you know, like, uh, uh, you know, M- Mandela was not as well known at this stage, and he was in jail. And, and why this was so interesting for me was because I lived in Lusaka as, as a child. And, you know, we were living in a farmhouse outside Lusaka. And, and one of our neighbors, which had another farmhouse, uh, was the headquarters of the African National Congress? Now I didn't know this until later, but I do remember the militant wing of the ANC, which was um, you know fighting apartheid in South Africa. Right. Yeah, and and uh, I mean that their headquarters, and so we would see you know people in, in in. I mean I didn't know any of this until much later when my siblings told me about this, but it mm. it helped to sort of contextualize and understand all of this. And I, I I felt like there was Africa has sort of been part of me. My upbringing in Africa was sort of like special to me because Africa was sort of like where I had my formative years where I didn't have a lot to do. And I did a lot of thinking there. And a lot of my personal philosophies on life were sort of like formed in my time there. And so like, I have this very fond memory of, of, of Africa and I have this, view of the injustices that that people from that continent face um you know like and, and so like this is something that you know was there and um and, you know i remember like as a child like you know we went to like kinshasa just like uh, you know uh congo and then i i remember when i was yeah. at just a lot i went to you know the congo to kinshasa and so other african countries and i noticed that you know when i was a child these were like modern places and now they were like crumbling and what happened? And so what was interesting about King Leopold's ghost was uh, so King Leopold's ghost is about King Leopold of Belgium. Um, and it's a story of how he uh, managed to colonize uh, modern DRC, but the Congo, his personal name as part of his personal, um, and it, it yeah, is a book.
1: His personal it's, ownership, so to speak.
0: Yeah, personal ownership, and and it is. I mean, if you've read, uh, if you've read the book, uh, the Heart of Darkness, or if you've saw, seen the movie Heart of Darkness. So the Heart of Darkness talks about that period, that era, and and so this is. Uh, it's, it's it's a book by a Berkeley professor, and um, it it had a very. Profound impact on me personally because it helped me to reawaken and reimagine and re and question my perspectives on my environment because you know like I also come from a sort of a non white sort of brown background from a from a, a you know sort of a like a background and and so um and I had my experiences as well of you know all sorts of discrimination and this helped me to sort of contextualize, you know, a lot of that and, and sort of like, it helped me to like reawaken and remember things that I had buried in my past. And that was helpful because, you know, when I used to be that guy on stage in Madrid saying, talking about, you know, assholes, I think what helped, what helped here was it helped me to humanize the oppressor and the oppressed. And when you humanize them, you understand that, you know, like, we're all products of our own conditioning. And so you know, there I see a viable pathway for me to become an oppressor uh, with the right conditioning. And so when you recognize that, then, then you know what the pill is. You know what the solution is, which is, you know, education and engagement and um and and you know it was helpful for me because sorry again i'm sorry these like r- r- long stories but i was in um you know one of my angel investors and, and one very few angel investor that gave me money uh was you know like somebody who was at the time and this is in the late 90s at the time offered me offered to invest in in, in me um he was a you know mid 50s white man uh redneck from missouri um and and i had heard him we were playing chess uh in in one of these like in 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 chicago there's this um like tables where you can sit and you sit with random strangers and you play and i used to love playing chess at the time um and we were talking and i was just like this bitter young man you know like and and he was like what's stopping you You know, like, and I was like, well, grandpa, uh, money. I don't have any and it was just, and he was like, I'll give you money. And you know, like we'd had conversations and he, because I, because I'm, I'm fair skinned and I have blue green eyes. Most people don't assume that I'm from like subcontinent and they'll think I'm maybe white or whatever. So he had made some comments about my people and, um, uh and i was like well how you know you and, and by this time he knew that i was from from you know the subcontinent i was like how can you think this about my people and yet you think of me as um you know somebody worthy of your money like ten thousand dollars me, right um and he was like well you're different um and at the time i just parked it as a as a um uh you know like Racist, kind of like you're different, and then I, but but King Leopold's ghost again, like completely different, right? But King Leopold's ghost helped me to recontextualize that experience of mine, uh, where what I realized was that he got to know me as a person, and so yes, he may have these very broad brush views about my ethnicity or people of my uh, ethnic backgrounds, but that didn't stop him from seeing the opportunity in me asher not me of my background and and so i guess what i'm saying is that you know like right now we're 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 seeing conflicts in so many different places and one of the things that i find is that if people engage with each other and humanize what is dehumanized um then you'll find that you may have more peace than war in, in, you know, in our societies. And so um, I'm sorry, this is like a long-winded, very philosophical thing. Right? I guess what I'm about, you, you know like every single experience that you've had in your life um, is a potential opportunity for you to learn and develop. And one of the lo- biggest tragedies of life that I see in people is that they have so many rich experiences that they don't even think about again um and and you know thinking about them and reflecting on them and trying to make sense of them as small as they may be and as long ago as they may be is so important to helping us develop and as as human beings and as professionals in 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 doing what we're doing to provide you know um a living for and you know
1: yeah for our families and 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 connecting to the human on the other side, so to speak of the conversation. Yeah. yeah. Uh, makes you help, helps base you and connect you to yourself as well. And, yeah. uh, it's a great note to end on. Yeah. Uh, thank yeah, you very sure. much for your time. And, uh, you've been, uh, let me express my gratitude for that. You've been very generous, uh, with your time and, uh, I'm sure the listeners will enjoy it and, uh, hopefully we'll have you on soon again.
0: Yes, exactly. I, I look forward. Can I can I just add one more thing? I apologize sure. again. I also no, have no. Um, gratitude for uh, uh, Tariq uh, because um, Tariq and I had, you know, a couple of interactions uh, over a 10, 12 year period. And, you know, those mi- micro interactions sort of like define our relationship. But, you know, Tariq sort of thinking of me to introduce to you to to have this conversation, uh, so I, I'm grateful uh, to Tarek for for introducing me to, to you and and to have this opportunity, and uh, you know I hope that you got what you wanted uh, out of this, yeah. and I apologize yeah. if we went off piste a little bit here, but uh, you know that such is the nature of talking to me. <laughs> that's
1: that's the fun, right? Of um, you never know what a conversation w- where will lead, and and that's why it's interesting and and uh, eye opening. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you. It's a pleasure. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you, Asher. Bye.
1: Take care. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Startups Arabia podcast. If there was something you really liked about what the guests said today, reach out to them on social media and tell them what you liked. And of course, if you haven't subscribed yet, what are you waiting for? You don't want to miss any of our great upcoming episodes. Also, please rate us. And give us comments on our social media accounts so that we know how to improve. And also tell us what you like. We don't mind hearing that either. Until next time, this was your host, Ali's Whale.